Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. Anniversary Sunday of the Reformation, and so we're celebrating, uh, ultimately celebrating Jesus tonight. I mean, that's, that's why we gather. That's the focus, but we commemorate uh, the Protestant Reformation and just all that was recovered during that time. Uh, Brian gave a great overview this morning uh, in this, this morning service on uh, kind of the, the circumstances surrounding uh, what happened in the 1500s with Martin Luther and the Reformation and how uh, the church at Rome had become corrupt and all those different things. And so we'll be focusing uh, tonight doing just an overview on the five what we refer to as the five solas. And sola is just the Latin word for alone. And so when we say sola scriptura, we're just saying scripture alone. Or sola gratia, that's the Latin word for grace, it's grace alone. And, and these are things, again, that we hold firmly to as Protestants as, and as Baptists. And so I think it's important to know church history. Uh, it's just a very significant time uh, for Christians to celebrate what was recovered during that time. And so I've got, uh, I'm dealing with just giving a brief overview of, of Scripture alone, uh, which is really the foundation. Uh, and I'm also going to talk about congregational singing as well. And so the debate uh, in Martin Luther's time was, was on divine revelation. So they believed that God revealed himself in two ways, and we believe that today. We believe that he reveals himself in nature. We see his power. The Bible talks about that, the complexity of creation. Uh, the heavens declare, as Psalm 19 says, the glory of God. But also the way he specifically reveals himself through his word. And so the, the church at Rome believed that it was, yes, it was the word where he specifically revealed himself, but it was also tradition. It was also uh, the, the fact that the Pope in the papacy held uh, an equal authority uh, as the Word of God. And so when Martin Luther was able to get, to, get a hold of a, uh, the Word of God in his written language uh, and better understand it, uh, he took issue with that. He took issue with the fact that only uh, the Pope and the leaders of the church uh, being able to read the Bible and, and there, that there was not a Bible in the common language of the day for the common people. And Luther's response to this is the culmination, as Brian read this morning, was that uh, when he was questioned about these stances that he took, he ended uh, his response with, uh, with this, that my conscience is bound by the Word of God. By the Word of God. And so that now means when we say sola scriptura or scripture alone, we're affirming the truth that the Word of God is the sole authority for the Christian. And it's the sole authority uh, in the church. This means that every single tradition, every single idea uh, must come under the submission to and examination of the Word of God. Uh, this was nothing new to, to Luther, really, because Jesus dealt with this in the Pharisees. He, he condemned the Pharisees because they were elevating tradition on, on an equal plane or even above the Word of God. And it's nothing new to us today. Um, 
Again, every doctrine and every practice that, that we partake in the life of the church must come under subjection to the Word of God. And God is very clear about His Word. Uh, he, he says that His Word is fixed in the heavens. Uh, we read in Hebrews chapter 4 uh, that the Word of God is living and active. It's authoritative. Uh, we read, um, flip with me real quick at, to, to 2 Timothy. And I want to read one scripture for us. 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter four. No, no, no. Second Timothy chapter three, uh, and we will look at verse sixteen. Chapter three, verse sixteen. I'm going to read this, and this is what again what God says about His Word. He says all Scripture is breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped. For every good work. And so that was what was restored and recovered through the Reformation that the Word of God, not man's word, not man's opinion, not man's ideas, not the church's ideas or the church's teachings, but that the Word of God be the sole authority in the church. Brother David preached a few weeks ago in 2 Peter chapter 1 that God has given us everything that is needed uh, pertaining to life and godliness through His Word. But not only just the authority of the Word, but the sufficiency of the Word of God in the life of the church. That it's sufficient to, to make wise uh, the simple. That it's sufficient to bring the unbeliever uh, to faith in Christ Jesus, to open the eyes of the blind. That it's sufficient in the life of the church, to build up and to edify and to strengthen and to mature infants in Christ to mature believers. Luther said this about the Word, and I, this, I'll end this section with, with this quote. Luther said, I simply taught, spoke, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. While I ate and slept, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. He said, I did nothing. The word of God did it all. And so we have much to be thankful for that we, we celebrate that and we hold fast to that teaching that it's, it's the Bible alone. But not only that, I want to encourage us in one other thing that was recovered in the, in the Reformation, and that is congregational singing. Uh, Brian or David this morning mentioned that, uh, that at the time of Luther that only the priest would sing. Uh, that the congregation, it was a passive thing for them to sit because they could not under, understand the songs in their language. And if you really think about it, doctrine, the truth of God's word, leads to doxology, which is the singing and praise and honor of God. And so without the right and correct doctrine, what would you even be singing? And your, your singing, your congregational singing, must be informed by the Word of God. And so when, this, you know, when these doors came open for the people of God to have the Word of God, it was, it was the congregational singing that continued uh, the heart of the Reformation in returning to the Word of God. 
Luther, I mean, he, he, was, he was a huge advocate for the people of God being able to sing the truth of God's Word. He wrote hymns. I think he wrote maybe 28 to 35 hymns. I read different uh, statistics that he, he wrote music so that it could be passed down. And some of his enemies uh, from the church at Rome said that his music and his, his songs and his hymnody did more damage than his theology, his doctrine, and his preaching because it was able to be reinforced into the heart of the people. That his, Martin Luther destroyed, this was a quote, Martin Luther destroyed more uh, of the papacy with his songs than he did in his doctrine and his writing. And so Luther understood that to sing to God was one, a command, right, to the local church. We read that in Colossians and Ephesians, the word to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to the Lord and to one another. But also that music is a gift from God. It's a privilege to be able to sing the truth of God's word, that, that, that music is powerful. It reorients our worldview. It, it solidifies the truth of God's Word into our hearts. That's why I can probably still sing last year's VBS songs, right? Because those things are burned into my brain, good, bad, and ugly. Uh, but but the music, music is a gift from God uh, that works the truth of God into our hearts and into our minds and often sticks with us longer than memorizing, wor- you know, main, just verses. And so, when I, I try and sing with Bo at night, sing these songs, Victory in Jesus, he will hold me fast because I want him to grow up just knowing the, the truth of God's word. And so that was recovered in the Reformation where God's people could sing God's truth to God. And so we have great reason to sing tonight uh, and to praise the Lord uh, for that he chooses an imperfect man and Luther and the other guys who came before him uh, to spark a reformation, and we stand on those truths. And I want us to celebrate God tonight, not men, uh, not a movement, but what God has done through, through imperfect people. I have soli fide and sola gracia. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But if you want to know someone's theology concerning faith and grace, ask them this question. How is a person justified? That is, how is a person made right between himself and God? Since we're considering the Reformation, it's helpful to know what was happening during that time. And if we were to ask the Roman Catholic Church, theologians, the Pope himself, during that time, and, and for a large part, even today, how is a person justified? Well, there are two elements in the Roman Catholic view. First, it requires an atonement. It requires Jesus' atonement. Jesus' death on the cross provides the atonement necessary for justification. But you also need one more thing. You need to be made righteous. How are you made righteous? Well, according to Rome, you're made righteous through first through baptism, and then that takes away your original sin, infuses the righteousness of Christ within you, And then you're made righteous by cooperating with that grace that's already in you. Now, this justifying grace, you would think, would be permanent. It's actually not. In fact, it can be lost by committing what is called mortal sins. If a person is baptized and then is mentally ascending to, that is, he he believes in Jesus' death, and is cooperating with this justifying grace, and then he commits a mortal sin, thereby losing his justifying grace, 
then that person can regain his justifying grace by the following actions. First, go to a priest and confess sin. Second, you make an act of contrition. Third, the priest absolves your sin. And then finally, you perform what are called works of satisfaction. And these works can give to the penitent what is called congruous merit. This congruous merit restores the grace to the believer and is through the different sacraments. Pretty confusing, right? But this is how, this is the theology. Now, of course, people in villages, they come to Mass and they do what the priest told them. They had no idea of the efforts involved. And so, for you and I, if we were living in Germany prior to 1517, then we would just go to the priest and say, what do I do? I did this. And this is the priest's theology, mind you. And so this is what was communicated to the average uh, person going uh, underneath the Roman Catholic Church. So therefore, a person is made righteous by acquiring grace through the sacraments of the church. This is what was happening at the time. Now, Martin Luther deeply rejected this idea. Here are a couple of his words talking about this. These arguments of the scholastics about the merit of congruence and of worthiness are nothing but vain fragments and dreamy speculations of idle folk about worthless stuff. He didn't like that idea. Yet they form the very foundation of the papacy, and on them it rests to this very day. For this is what every monk imagines. By observing the sacred rules of my order, I can earn the grace of congruence But by the works I do, after I've received this grace, I can accumulate a merit so great that it will not only be enough for me to have eternal life, but enough to sell and give to others. During during Martin Luther's time, Brian made mention this morning, Martin Luther was deeply upset at first, um, and then later by many things, but one of the things he began to question about the Roman Catholic order of things was the sale of indulgences. It was built on this idea of justification, that monks could gain enough good works and enough merit, not only would they have enough grace within them that would earn eternal life, but that they could even sell it. And so you had Johann Tetzel, who began going to villages and would sell these indulgences to people in the villages and say, hey, if you buy this, you can earn enough merit for your salvation, but then also for the salvation of even relatives. This is very false. And so, but it comes down to this. So for Rome, Roman Catholic view, grace, faith, and the work of Christ, they are necessary for salvation, but not sufficient. In order to be saved, it is faith plus works that earn merit and so make a person righteous to be present or to have eternal life here, and then it needs to, the works need to be present in the life of the believer. So the Reformation, what it brought about was a true understanding of faith and grace, and therefore a true understanding of justification, how a person is made right before God. It is this. It is faith alone and Grace alone, perhaps put it this way, 
here's a couple of propositions. So first, for Roman Catholic understanding, righteousness must be earned through your own personal merit. What we believe today under understanding faith alone is that faith is a gift from God that is both necessary and sufficient for salvation. For Rome, a person must have the righteousness of Christ, plus inherit righteousness from his or her good works. We believe that our righteousness comes from outside us. That is, our righteousness comes from the merits of Christ. Christ lived a perfect life and died a sinless death so that we might become the righteousness of God. For Rome, grace must be earned through congruous merit. That is, you have to be baptized. You need to come to church. You need to have penitence. We believe that grace is also a gift of God that comes to us directly from God through faith by believing in the gospel. For Rome, if you wanted grace, you needed to go to the church, and more particularly, the actual building. You needed to go see a priest. The scriptural understanding of grace is it comes directly from God to the believer. For Rome, there is no assurance of salvation, but a life trying to earn God's grace. We believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. And because of this, we have a rock-solid assurance in the merits of Christ, not of that or of our own. Perhaps the most succinct verses I can think of that describe this is probably what you're already thinking of. And Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Notice what is said. So notice that we are saved by grace through faith. And so when Paul writes that this is not of our own doing, which is the next clause, and this is not of your own doing, he's referring to both grace and faith. And then when he writes that it is a gift of God, also, too, he's referring to grace and faith. Grace and faith are both gifts of God. And while it is true that we have repentance toward God and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, walking an aisle or praying a prayer of repentance does not have any saving merit. But those demonstrate God's grace in salvation. Simply put, Soli fide and sola gracia are doctrines that come to us directly from Scripture, and it states that God has done everything that is necessary for salvation. So let's praise God that His salvation comes to us through faith alone, through grace alone, and this is something that He has done, and we rest in Christ's finished work. Well, I have um, in Christ alone, solo Christo, uh, when the reform, reformers um, came to the realization, and Luther and others uh, came to this, this wonderful, uh, we won't say discovery, as we said, there is uh, no truth is new truth, uh, but when they rediscovered these biblical truths as they began to understand and as the Word of God was opened up to them and they came to understand, as has already been said tonight, the full sufficiency of Christ, that we're saved uh, by Christ alone. 
apart from uh, uh, any merit of any other person, uh, including ourselves, uh, including Mary, or including any other means outside of Christ. Uh, We love and believe in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are not saved by the church. We are not saved, uh, as has been mentioned tonight, by any, any sacrament or any, any act, uh, any righteousness of anyone, because we are totally apart from righteousness. Uh, so Scripture makes it very clear, of the, uh, again, that it is Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone, Scripture says in Revelation nineteen sixteen, is the King of kings. He alone is our high priest, Hebrews 4, 14. Uh, And by the way, as our high priest, uh, he provides access, full access to the Father. And and, uh, we are, as Brian also mentioned this morning, now uh, believer priest in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have full access. And Scripture tells us that when Christ finished the work for us at Calvary's cross and the veil of the temple was rent in two, he made full uh, access uh, into into the very presence of God for us through Christ alone. Uh, he alone is our Redeemer, Galatians 3.13. Again, um, he is the sole mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Uh, it is in Christ and Christ alone uh, who saves. Again, it is not our righteousness uh, who, which saves us. It is Christ's righteousness alone. Again, Scripture says he saves us, uh, not because of our, uh, the righteous things which we had done, but because of his mercy Titus chapter 3, verse 5. And I have several scriptures I want to uh, take a few moments and read to you this evening. I won't be able to go into, obviously, great detail, but I want you to see as I read these scripture passages, and no doubt these were passages as Luther and other reformers began to read the scripture again with this understanding of the sufficiency of Christ, how they saw so clearly taught in the Word of God that Christ alone was was sufficient for us. Hebrews 9, 12 uh, says to us, he entered once for all into the holy places, into heaven, into the very holy of holies, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Once for all, indicating again the sole sufficiency of Christ's work on our behalf. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, following that very famous verse we many of us know and memorize, Galatians 2.20. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Think of this for a moment. If we could He says, if we nullify the grace of God, if it were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. Again, if you could add 1%, if Christ's death was not totally and completely sufficient, let's just say you added 1% and you said, here's my part, God, 1%, and I'll trust in Christ 99%, according to this verse, then you have made Christ's death, or that makes Christ's death, of absolutely no purpose. His death, therefore, was useless. Again, Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 and 4, and again, one of Luther's favorite books of the Bible when when, when the Word of God began to open up to him. It says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, 
Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Again, these were some of the false teachers, the Judaizers who in this day were teaching that that the Old Testament ritual of circumcision was necessary for salvation. But you can replace that word with any other work, any other merit that you could perform. And you could say, if it's baptism, if it's good works, if it's any other thing that I could do, that I could accomplish, again, he is saying, once again, that, that, again, that, that, that Christ, that you're severed from Christ, that Christ's death is no longer necessary and you've fallen away from grace. So again, showing to us the sufficiency of the death of Christ. Romans chapter 5, another of the books, and that one, as I mentioned in his testimony this morning, where, where again, he had the breakthrough of, of the realization of the sufficiency of Christ. Uh, in, in Romans five seventeen, he says, For if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so the act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made sinners. Righteous Through the one man, the Lord Jesus, will many be made righteous. Many, of course, is everyone who would repent of his sin and place his faith in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation. Once again, the sufficiency of Christ's death on our behalf. Romans 8, 1 through 3. Listen again as he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. For he condemned sin in the flesh. The Lord Jesus condemned sin in his flesh. His death was sufficient for us, that our sin might be once and for all forgiven. So again, he came to understand and praise God for the truth of the sufficiency of Christ in Christ alone. And even tonight as we prepare to come and celebrate together the Lord's Supper once again, I want to remind you that the Lord's Supper has no merit to save either. Uh, Luther didn't get it all completely right in his understanding of the Lord's Supper, but we know, of course, the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate it tonight, is a reminder for us of the finished work of Christ. Christ's body and blood are not in the elements of the Lord's Supper. It's not necessary because it reminds us that what Christ did on the cross was a finished work for us. And we look back again to his sufficiency. We rest totally in his sufficiency. And I want to remind you of that tonight as we prepare together as the body of Christ to celebrate the supper of our Lord. And, and I want you tonight uh, in doing so especially 
to celebrate and worship Christ for his sufficiency on our behalf. Jesus, of course, celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, and out of that Passover meal, he lifted the elements and, and established the Lord's Supper for his church as a remembrance meal, and we do so uh, on a regular occasion and, and regularly to, again, remind ourselves of the gospel uh, and once again to be reminded of the sufficiency of Christ to save us and to keep us and, and we get rejoice again in the precious blood that was shed and the body that was broken on our behalf. We do so as a body, again, because uh, Christ, while he is not in the elements, he is in our midst. We are here with him, and we are made one with one another and one with Christ uh, through the precious blood uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his body. Well, I have solely Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone, everyone else gets to speak on a sola, but Gloria is feminine in Latin, so I get a soli. I get to be the odd man out. Soli Dea Gloria was a Reformation cry because Catholic theology partially credited man for his salvation. All the primary solas, all these cries of the Reformation, these doctrines were really about salvation. And the Reformers recognized that if salvation was truly by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, then it had to be to the glory of God alone. If any part of your salvation is due, as Catholic theology taught, to your merit, then that portion is to your credit. It is to your glory. It is not to God's glory. But the Reformers fiercely resisted this and said salvation had to be only of God, therefore it had to be to His glory alone. But what does this mean precisely? What is the glory of God? What does it mean to glorify God? Reformers talk a lot about this, but it becomes a term that people, you know, it's abstract sometimes. And what does that really practically mean? Well, one text that's very helpful or instructive of this is Psalm 96, verse 1 through 3, and I'll read it for you. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. You could almost put an equal sign in there. Declare His glory among the nations. That is equal to His marvelous works among all the peoples. God's glory is all that He is and all that He has done. The verse says, bless His name. And tell of his salvation day to day. Speak of who he is and what he has done. One author, is, one author has said, God's glory is the sum total of all his perfections. Everything that he is and done added up together. And scripture says we, we don't even fully understand what all this is now. Simply put, it is God's reputation. To give God glory is to make known his attributes and his actions. It's to give him praise and all the praise that he is due. And he is due all praise. Listen to these various scriptures um, I'd like to read for you and demonstrate how they teach that everything is to the praise of God's glory. God is glorified in nature, 
says Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. God is glorified in the creation of man. Isaiah 43 says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God is glorified in salvation. Ephesians 1 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God is glorified in judgment. Exodus 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God is glorified in his provision. Exodus 16, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. God is glorified in affliction and in mercy. Isaiah 48, for my name's sake I defer my anger, for the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how shall my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is glorified in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. John 17, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God is glorified in evangelism and missions. Psalm 72, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things, Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And in Romans chapter 11, Paul says, God is glorified in absolutely all things. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him 
and to him or all things, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. A reformed person recognizes that all exists by God's hand. Therefore, all praise is due to him. None of it should be retained by us. We should be as mirrors just reflecting his glory as the moon reflects the sun, but does not itself generate any light. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is the idea of all the glory being given to God. Johann Sebastian Bach would sign all of his compositions SDG, which you can tell is not his initials. SDG, Soli Deo Gloria. Every time he wrote one of his masterpiece compositions, he was ascribing the glory to God, to God alone glory, not to himself. He wanted the glory to go to God. Soli Deo Gloria is an act of worship. The Reformation rediscovered that we worship God not only in song, but in all of our life, in every act of life. Let us live and breathe for the glory of God. In 1996, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals published a declaration examining the five solas and looking at how the church was doing in these areas. And regarding Soli Dea Gloria, they wrote this, We affirm that because salvation is of God and has been accomplished by God, it is for God's glory and that we must always glorify him. We must live our entire lives before the face of God, under the authority of God, and for his glory alone. We deny that we can properly glorify God if our worship is confused with entertainment, if we neglect either law or gospel in our preaching, or if self-improvement, self-esteem, or self-fulfillment are allowed to become alternatives to the gospel. And I want to read that last part again. If self-improvement, self-esteem, and self-fulfillment are allowed to become alternatives to the gospel, we cannot properly glorify God. If your life portraying Christ is a life of self-improvement, self-esteem, or self-fulfillment, then Christ is not getting the glory, and God is not being glorified through that. However, if we trade self-esteem for Christ-esteem, if we act not for our own praise but for the praise of God, then any of our acts can glorify God. And I, I do mean any act. Luther wrote this. Listen to these words. When a father goes ahead and washes diapers or performs some other menial task for his child and someone ridicules him as an effeminate fool God with all his angels and creatures is smiling. Christians, serve God and praise him with all the glory due his mighty name. And to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, His death for you on the cross, and His resurrection from the dead, 
and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.